right, welcome back again, everybody. It's only been a few weeks since I released the last Egypt Travel Podcast episode, and I told you all that I would be back more frequently this year, didn't I? And here I am again with part two of planning second and third trips to Egypt for those who have already been there once. And even if you've never been to Egypt before, these episodes right now are still great for you too, because basically what I'm covering here is what you can safely skip on a first trip to Egypt because of time constraints. Unless you're there for more than about two or three weeks, and what you can go back and hit on a future trip to Egypt when you come back for a second or third time. Several people reached out after the first episode who were actually planning first trips to Egypt and told me that they actually found that episode useful in deciding what to skip over and what to include in their first trip. So that made me really realize that these two or three episodes aren't only useful for those who've already been to Egypt, but really for everyone planning to go, even if it's your first time or your second time or your third time or your 18th time, whatever the case may be. So let's see where we left off. In part one of this episode set, we talked about some stuff near Giza, Aswan, and Luxor that most visitors don't usually have time to see on a first trip to Egypt because they're already too busy spending time on the big things, primarily the pyramids, the tombs, the temples. You've got to see that stuff on your first trip, of course. But then there are more pyramids, more tombs, more temples, that you can make time to see on a second or third trip. And some of those secondary or out-of-the-way sites are really unique and special, especially for the history buffs out there. But okay, what about beyond the ancient historical stuff? Egypt is packed full of those, more so than any other country in the world, I believe. But Egypt is also more than just ancient sites and extraordinary monuments, which is why vacationing there isn't just educational enriching, but it's also a lot of fun too. So I was thinking for this episode, we can talk about some of the fun stuff to do in Egypt um, around, let's see, maybe around Luxor, out in the Sahara Desert, and even I think we'll get into some of the stuff over on the Red Sea coast. And then I want to wrap up this episode by talking a little bit about what there is to do in the Sinai Peninsula which can be a little out of the way, but it's quite well-known nonetheless. So I want to talk about it and get into what there is to see and do and what's worth it and what's not there and in these other places. Then, you know, I think I might even do a part three and save the last couple of categories of places in Egypt I want to talk about for that third part, that third episode of this episode series. And that will be all about the north coast of Egypt, which is a newer, sort of more developing area for tourism, and then some of the oases in Egypt, which tend to be really popular for second and third time visitors. Not so much for first time visitors because they usually don't have time to go out there. Some of the best ones can be really far out in the desert and take at least a couple of days. And most people don't have that on a first trip to Egypt when you're getting in all the other stuff too. So we'll talk about those, whether it's worth it, whether it's not, what's required, the logistics of getting out there, what there is to see and do once we get out there, and a little bit more in a third part of this episode set. Okay, so for this one, part two, let's get back to Luxor, where we left off before, when we were talking about lots of extra tombs and temples on the west 
bank to see when you're in Luxor. And then we talked about Abydos and Dendera, a little bit north of Luxor, a couple hours north. You know, Luxor is one of the most ruin-rich areas of the world, the most densely populated areas of the world when it comes to ancient ruins, because it was the fabulously wealthy and powerful capital of this empire for thousands of years. One of the greatest civilizations and capitals in history, which means that tons of small and large and grandiose monuments and temples and ruin sites dot the desert landscape outside of Luxor, around this ancient capital. Now, Luxor is also lush and green for miles and miles on either side of the Nile because the river's water, the river's waters irrigate, I can't talk today, irrigate a lot of the farmland up and down the Nile Valley. So what you would see from the air if you were flying or hovering or floating above Luxor is just hundreds and hundreds of miles of deep, lush greenery running north to south along the Nile Valley, and then hundreds of miles more of beautiful tan desert spreading out on either side of the valley. And peeking out from between the stretches of farmland and palm groves are these marvelous temple ruins every few miles around Luxor. And I haven't even mentioned yet the sunrises and sunsets. Sunrises and sunsets over Luxor, and really Aswan too for that matter, are simply stunning because of the desert backdrops over which the sun comes up and goes down, which creates some really amazing, dramatic views. So where is the best place to see all of this from, you ask? Well, I hinted a minute ago when I said that you can really see the expanses of color and landscape from the air, floating above the air, or floating in the air above uh, Luxor. Luxor is one of the best places, this is what I'm getting at, to take a hot air balloon ride and take in some dramatic scenery from the air that you just can't see in all its glory from the ground level. So this is one of the first fun things to do in Egypt that I wanted to mention because you can do it from right here in Luxor where we left off talking about some of the more uh, tombs and temples you can see too if you have more time in Luxor on a subsequent trip. And now that I'm thinking about it actually, this is something you can do on a first trip too if you really want to because hot air ballooning in Luxor is a super, super early in the morning thing because everyone wants to make sure they also see the sunrise back across the river over the eastern desert while they're up there in the balloon. So depending on the time of year, we're really talking about a 4 a.m. to 5 a.m. departure from your hotel or from the takeoff site so that you can still be back down on the ground and ready to go for a full day of touring before the sites even open up. So if you're not afraid of heights or super early mornings and you want to do something really unique while you're in Luxor, just know that this is a really great and really popular place for hot air ballooning. And they have really advanced ballooning companies, a really advanced ballooning industry now in Luxor as a result of its popularity there. This isn't a place with only one or two companies that do this once in a while. There are dozens and dozens of hot air balloon companies and they're really experienced with this on a daily basis. So it really is very, very safe. Now, even if you don't want to do a hot air balloon ride, it can also be worth it to wake up early one day 
and see all the hot air balloons in the air floating over Luxor's western bank as the sun comes up over the Nile. That makes for a really beautiful sight too, even from the ground, as long as you don't mind waking up early to catch it. Now, let's move on from Luxor and float over to the Red Sea coast. Now, this is an area of Egypt that's not really about ancient history at all. It's more about modern luxuries and enjoyment. The Red Sea has beautiful, beautiful turquoise blue water that just makes for striking views. And now it has a lot of options for resorts, ranging from smaller, more eco-friendly resorts and hotels to larger, luxurious compounds that have everything you could ever want to pamper yourself in one of the most gorgeous seaside environments in the world. But beware, though. I've talked about this before. There are a lot of shoddy and overly touristy resorts, too, along the Red Sea coast. I did an entire episode a while back, I remember, on resorts along Egypt's mainland Red Sea coast. And in that episode, I talked about how, you know, many of the mass tourism resorts in Hurghada, for example, cater to these cheap Euro weekend package holiday tourists. And those should really be avoided by people coming over for longer and nicer vacations from North America, Western Europe, Australia, you know, even East Asia. For you, this is a big trip and you want to do it up nice. It's not a cheap weekend holiday package you know, that you picked up at the gas station, like you see coming out of places, you know, some, some travel agencies in Ukraine and Russia and Poland, and even some in Italy and other places that, you know, are just a lot closer to Egypt and for whom Egypt is just a quick weekend trip to lay out in the sun all day and get skin cancer. So anyway, those coming to Egypt on bigger trips to see historic sites and soak up the culture and want to have a nice Red Sea experience, you can do that at many of the nicer resort areas I've mentioned along the coast, such as El Guna, the new Soma Bay development, um, and even further south, if you don't mind flying, down to Marsa Alam. All those are really good options for quality, authentic, nice Red Sea experiences. Just keep in mind, however, that Marsa Alam is pretty far south. Um, you can drive there, from Luxor, it's going to be just a long drive all day. I don't really recommend it. I really recommend you flying. And keep in mind that you're going to have to connect in Cairo regardless. So if you're coming from Luxor, you have to fly Luxor, Cairo, Marsa Alam. So it's going to be, a, it's, it's still going to be, you know, at least a half a day um, of travel. But, you know, you're taking a one hour flight and then an hour and a half flight as opposed to driving or riding in a car for eight to 10 hours to get there if you want to go by road. And if you were coming from Cairo, forget it. You just, you, you don't drive from Cairo. It's, it would take you two days. So, um, you know, point being, Marsa Alam is a really nice uh, secluded resort that not a lot of people go to. It's in a nice part of the Red Sea. It's just really far south. So you have to fly there and you need to budget, um, you know, financially and time-wise for adding in an extra flight to and from Marsa Alam if you want to go to that place on the Red Sea. However, El Guna and especially Soma Bay are both easily drivable from Luxor. Soma Bay is only about three hours away, whereas Guna is really going to be about three and a half, four hours away. And Hergada, which is in between those two, does have an airport that is very convenient for taking flights back to Cairo when you're ready to leave if you don't want to go by road. 
I've had many, many people over the years, many guests, clients, travelers, go back from Elguna to Cairo by road. It's about five hours. So, you know, it just depends on what you want and your travel preferences. Sometimes people like to be able to leave when they want. And, you know, a flight schedule that has two to three flights a day from Hergada to Cairo might not accommodate when you want to get back to Cairo or when you want to leave the Red Sea. So for some people, especially since Guna is further north, it's only about five hours. Um, Soma Bay is further south, so it might be about six, so maybe not as worth it. But when you're in Guna, you know, you're kind of thinking between, okay, five hours on the road or five hours, still going to be, you know, between going to the airport, waiting, you know, checking in, all that, flying back, waiting on your luggage, all that. It still might be, you know, a good three and a half, four hours. So just whether you want to drive back from Guna to Cairo or fly back, you know, go to Hergada and fly back, depends on you not only the time that you want to leave, your travel preferences. Some people like riding in a car for a long time. But yeah, I'd say if you're going to do Soma Bay, it's definitely worth flying back. If you're going to do Guna, it's maybe like, you know, 60% flying, 40% driving. And then Marsa Alam, of course, you have to fly because it's way down there. Okay, so what is there fun to do on the Red Sea? Well, the thing the Red Sea is most famous for, of course, is scuba diving. It's one of the world's premier scuba diving sites. If you're interested in scuba and aren't certified yet, by the way, it's also a really cheap place to get your certification compared to other places like the U.S. and Europe. And even if you don't scuba dive like me, it's still a great place to go snorkeling. It's just beautiful. And, okay, obviously, since we're talking about water activities, anything else water-related that you can imagine is big on Egypt's Red Sea coast. I'm talking about boating, fishing, parasailing, water skiing, jet skiing, all of that normal beachy stuff. And many of the bigger resorts even have separate stuff, especially for kids too, by the way. So, you know, beachy stuff, uh, water sports, stuff like that, stuff in the pool. So if you're a family and you're traveling with young kids, parking in a nice resort on the coast for a few days can be a really nice change for them from all of the historical stuff elsewhere. But don't get me wrong, though. I mean, don't get the wrong idea. I rarely see kids at these resorts along the Red Sea. I think that there are more kids at the package holiday touristy places in and around Hergada. But I'm just saying that young kids would be more likely to enjoy this part of a trip if you happen to have them with you in tow on a journey to Egypt. Okay? Now, another thing you can do on the Red Sea, which I really love doing, and which you can also do back in Giza, by the way, if you want to, I've done this many times there too in the desert out behind the pyramids, but it, I'm talking about four-wheeling, okay? In Egypt, they call it quad biking, like Q-U-A-D, quad biking. And the machines, they call quad bikes. But in the U.S., at least, we call them four-wheelers and the activity four-wheeling. So in the rocky desert areas outside of, for example, El Guna, Hergada, you know, that general area around the middle of the Red Sea coast, Soma Bay, I used to take a lot of folks actually out four-wheeling on trips for a few hours in the late afternoons when we would do a lot of trips that would do a Guna weekend. And the, the four-wheeling trips at the end were really a lot of fun. People always really, really enjoyed those. We would always ride out about a half an hour um, into the desert. We'd stop and we'd check out some ancient fossils at a site along the trail there. We'd ride about another half an hour. We'd stop and have tea at a Bedouin camp and relax and chill a while. We'd ride a little bit more. There was a great spot uh, on a cliff where we'd go and just kind of goof off for a while and take pictures together in the desert uh, and on the cliff. And then we'd make the journey back to Elguna 
after watching the sunset from that cliff over the desert. It was really just a lot, a lot of fun. There also, by the way, since I mentioned it a second ago, I'll just say here too, there's also a place near the pyramids where I like to take people to ride four-wheelers over across you know, the, the, desert, the desert sand dunes. And that's a lot of fun too for about an hour in the late afternoon. You know, you have tea and a few drinks out there while watching the sunset after you get exhausted riding, you know, four-wheelers across the Sahara. And you have the pyramids right there in the background too as you're just relaxing. And it's just a really nice setting. So that's an option too if people want to ride four-wheelers, but you're not going out to the Red Sea. You can do it in Giza when you're in, in the Cairo Giza area as well. Another thing to mention, the, both of these areas, both that Giza, you know, behind the pyramids in the desert area and in the rocky eastern desert area around the Red Sea coastal towns, you can also do horseback riding in those. I used to love to go horseback riding in Giza in the desert after finishing up with a group. I would go rent a horse and just go take it out by myself riding across the desert dunes, uh, getting it to gallop and um, it was just, oh, it's such a freeing, relaxing experience just to go gallop across the Sahara Desert by yourself, pyramids over there to the right, 5,000 miles of desert to your left, um, in the evening, the cool breeze, oh, it's just amazing. But while I'm talking about horses, let me just mention one more thing. This is backing up to the Luxor Aswan area. They have these, what I call carriage jockeys there, these you know, dudes that have horses pulling carriages and they approach you all the time on the street, especially if you're walking alone or in a small group and they can tell you a foreigner and they, they follow you for five minutes or so just saying, do you want to ride a horse? Do you want to ride a carriage? It's romantic. It's nice. Blah, blah, blah. You know, they're just trying to sell you basically a horse drawn carriage ride through the city of Luxor or Aswan. Please don't take these. Please don't uh, feed into that. Those horses in Aswan and Luxor are so badly treated, and these creepy guys are such bad harassers of tourists down there if they catch them alone. Please just do me a favor and don't reward that behavior um, and that mistreatment of animals in Luxor and Aswan by giving these guys any money or letting them give or show you anything at all. Even, I mean, sometimes they're just so um, aggressive, and feel free to be rude to them if you have to, to, to get rid of them, because those carriage guys really are the bad guys who make honest Egyptians look bad because of this behavior. There are some uh, great, decent, ethical people who care for horses and rent out horses and give horseback rides in Egypt. But the guys doing the horse and carriage scam thing in Luxor and Aswan are the bad guys, making the good guys in Egypt look bad by association. So just please do us all a favor and, and don't give those guys any money or, or let them scam you into anything. Okay, back to the Red Sea. But let's head to another part of the Red Sea now, okay? I want to talk about the Sinai Peninsula. Now, this, of course, is a very well-known region of Egypt to Westerners because it has a lot of biblical significance and also because it was a flashpoint in several of the international conflicts that happened in the Middle East in the 60s and 70s. Israel actually took control of the Sinai Peninsula in 1967 after the third Arab-Israeli war in less than two decades, and the Israelis held on to it until Egypt agreed to a peace treaty in 1979. So before that, the Sinai wasn't all at all a tourist destination, and it was more of really a, a no-man's land. But since the 1980s, 
the southern tip of the Sinai and the southeastern coast have been built up into a very popular tourist destination for people from Europe and the Middle East especially, and some from North America too. Now, there are pros and cons to including Sinai Peninsula spots on a trip to Egypt, and I'll go through those with you, okay? So for starters, let's talk about the pros, all right? The main city in the Sinai Peninsula is Sharm el-Sheikh, or at least in the south. And this is probably Egypt's most well-known Red Sea beach resort internationally. It's not realistically drivable from Cairo, so you have to take a flight there. Regardless, unless you want to spend 10 hours on the road driving, which I wouldn't recommend. There are also no trains that run there, by the way. So it's pretty much plain or nothing. Now, Sharm is a decent-sized city for a beach resort in Egypt. It's obviously nowhere as big as Cairo. You know, almost no city in the world is as big as Cairo. But... Sharm is comparable in size to, I would say, to Luxor or Hergada. Now, I give Hergada a lot of crap about being a cheap Euro tourist package holiday destination with shoddy resorts and no decent city attached, but I put Sharm about two notches above that for the better. I don't usually recommend that people go to Sharm on a first visit to Egypt, even if you want to spend some time at the Red Sea, because there are other much nicer Red Sea destinations that are much closer. But sometimes people do want to go to Sharm, especially if they're seriously into scuba diving, like I mentioned before, because Sharm is one of the top global well-known destinations for scuba. Now, another reason Sharm is a place you might want to go on the Red Sea is if you want a bit of a party scene attached to your Red Sea location. You won't find anything like that in Hergada because that city's just trashy. And the other Red Sea towns are really too small to have any sort of bar or party or social scene. But Sharm does have a little bit of that. However, most people go to the Red Sea to unplug and to get away and to relax. So most aren't looking for that in a Red Sea destination. But with that said, however, you know, I've had some really good times partying and dancing and going out to some bars and clubs in Sharm in my youth, and then, you know, stumbling back to the resort late at night. Um, I'll leave that there for now, but just keep in mind that Sharm does have a small nightlife scene that some may want to experience if you're into that, and if that's a factor for you. So, you know, you can consider that as an aspect or a, a pro that Sharm has, in addition to scuba diving, and if that matters to you, then Sharm may be somewhere that you want to check out. Sharm el-Sheikh is also a launching point for those who want to go visit St. Catherine's Monastery and Mount Sinai, which is pretty much in the middle of the southern third of the Sinai Peninsula. Now be warned, you don't want to go any further north than this into the interior of the Sinai Peninsula. That area is largely ungoverned and you can run into some trouble if you try to wander out into the desert there, especially on your own. If anyone, including any companies even, offer to take you elsewhere out into the desert in the central or southern Sinai, you know, know that they're most likely doing it illegally. They most likely aren't able, I mean, it's hard to get government permission to go out there uh, and you have to have permits to go everywhere in Egypt. So if they're taking you out there or saying they can, they're most likely doing it illegally and there's a chance they're putting you in danger because that area is off limits, most of it, to foreigners because of crime, bandits, and such. It's just not as well patrolled by the Egyptian military and security forces. And so out in the middle of, you know, the, the desert north of where St. Catharines and Mount Sinai are, 
um, if you drive north from there out in the desert. I mean, there are some beautiful areas out there, some colorful canyons, you, unique rock formations, stuff like that. So sometimes people do want to go out there, but it's just not advisable from my point of view and from my experience. I just wouldn't go out there. And also wouldn't take anybody else out there. I would say you'd have to check with somebody else on that. And you just need to make sure if you do, you need to make sure that they're taking you there legally. They need to have a permit. They need to show you the permit. It'll be in Arabic, but you need to see some sort of official permission because if you get caught out there without having gotten the permit from the government to take a tourist out there, then you can get in a lot of trouble, get turned around at the very least, get fined at the most, and then your tour company could could get in a lot of hot water as well. But with that said... The area around Mount Sinai and the road from the coast to Mount Sinai is still generally safe, and many, many, many people do it. I've never actually heard of an incident on the road from the coast to Mount Sinai. Like I said, it's normally when people get off the beaten path, when they try to go in the desert, they try to go visit some places out in the middle of nowhere that they've heard about, and they try to go do that illegally is when they run into trouble. Now, it's still about a three and a half hour journey by road to Mount Sinai from Charm. So it's out there. The road is safe, it's well monitored, but it's out there. And I really only recommend visiting this area for those who have a strong religious draw to see it. It's not really beautiful or anything, just know that. I mean, hiking up Mount Sinai before dawn and watching the sunrise from the top of Mount Sinai is pretty nice. I mean, it's it's scenic. But you know, you can see spectacular sunrises from many other places in Egypt too. So I wouldn't just go to Mount Sinai for that purpose alone, for the scenery or the aesthetic. Um, You can get that in many other places in Egypt without having to trek way out in the middle of nowhere in the Sinai Peninsula to get that. But if seeing Mount Sinai is, you know, something you've always wanted to do once in your life, then it can be a special experience. I've climbed Mount Sinai myself a few times. And once I even, or here's a good story for you, once I even took a set of clients there to help one of them propose to his fiance on top of Mount Sinai, which was a very, very endearing experience, and she was not expecting it at all. It was a great surprise. That was such a great memory for all of us because um, before we made the trip out to the Sinai, I went shopping for him in Cairo, and I bought a bunch of you know things that we could use to set the scene. I bought a bunch of white blankets and candles and other decorations to lay out over the mountaintop and create you know this really romantic setting for them. And then we had to keep it a secret from her the whole hike up and especially near the top because so they they had some other friends with them, too, who had come to Egypt with them. So as we were going up to the top of Mount Sinai, you know, they were trying to delay her from reaching the top before we finished setting up everything up there. And so her friends kept stopping her and being like, oh, wow, let's stay here for a minute and, you know, take in this view. And it wasn't quite sunrise yet because we were trying to plan it for or time it for around sunrise. And so, you know, they kept saying things like, oh, let's just stop here and take in the view. This is really neat. And, you know, she's kind of thinking like, what? We're almost to the top. It's still dark. It's not even really light yet. Let's let's catch up with everybody else and stop and do this take in the view thing at the top. And obviously, when she got to the top, she saw the setup. She saw her fiance up there waiting for her. And she kind of knew something was about to happen. And she was kind of like, what is going on? And then as as soon as she got over to him, you know, he got down on one knee and he had this speech prepared for her. And it was really, really amazing. Anyway, great memories on top of Mount Sinai with some some great guests I had. But yeah, also another memory I have from Mount Sinai, I remember the first time I climbed it, 
I mean, it's a hike. You do it usually overnight, but it's a hike. And the top is the steepest part. And there are these, you know, they've sort of carved the stone of the mountain into these steps near the top, I guess, to make it easier to go up in that steeper part. And you have a lot of religious pilgrims that come there. And I remember just being exhausted getting to the top of Mount Sinai. And all of a sudden, you see these 90-year-old nuns passing you when you're about to pass out and these 90 year old nuns are just sprinting by you, <laughs> get to the top and you're just like, Oh God, I can't let a, nun, a 90 year old nun beat me. I got to keep going. So anyway, creating really special moments like that in Egypt for guests has really been amazing over the years. And I love doing that stuff. There are so many places, really unique places and settings in Egypt to do things like this. So there's a hint. If you are thinking of proposing to a significant other in a really special place, like in a pyramid or on a pyramid or underneath the Sphinx or on top of Mount Sinai or on the Red Sea beach or who knows, inside of an ancient temple or anything like that, reach out to me and let me know and we can plan something really unique and memorable and special. I've done it before. I love doing it. You'd be surprised at how amazing and how easily easy it is to have a, an incredible moment at an incredible monument or site or place like this in Egypt. Okay. Back to Mount Sinai. Um, another interesting thing about this site is St. Catherine's Monastery. Now, this is an Eastern Orthodox Christian monastery that was built in about the 6th century AD, although there was likely an even older monastery on the site before because there, there is a, a, a known travel diary of a Roman pilgrim from the late 300s that has survived, and it mentioned a religious establishment on this site too at that time. But the current monastery, the current building, or its foundations date to the mid-500s, so the 6th century, although really it's probably as old as the late 300s, or who knows, maybe even older. We just don't have evidence of it being older. But regardless of the site's real founding date, St. Catherine's is still one of the oldest monasteries in the world. And it actually contains the oldest continuously operating library in the world inside of its walls. You know, it's also supposedly the site of the burning bush from the Old Testament. And there's literally a bush growing inside of the monastery. And the monks in there say that that is the original burning bush. So that's up to you to decide if that is or not. But even with the religious story aside, St. Catherine's is undeniably steeped in nearly 2,000 years of authentic Christian history that is very, very fascinating for history lovers, and especially for biblical history lovers. Another area in the Sinai worth briefly mentioning is the strip of coastline running northeast of Sharm. There's about 200 kilometers of coast stretching from Sharm el-Sheikh at the southern tip of the peninsula, or southeastern tip, to the Israeli border. And this area tends to be really popular with Israeli tourists because it's close to Israel, and they can cross the land border there between Egypt and Israel at Taba and vacation in the Sinai easily without a visa. But this area also tends to be somewhat popular with both expats who are living in Egypt, who are looking for, you know, like a beach area that isn't frequented by many foreigners or many tourists, and with, um, with, with hippie types who are looking for something a little bit more natural and laid back and even a little rustic. Now, there are two main beach towns in this part of the Sinai. So we're talking eastern, really southeastern Sinai coast between Sharm and Taba. So 
there's the city or the town of Dahab and the town of Nueva. And honestly, I've always known these two towns to be where travelers go to smoke pot and chill out on the beach, even though, of course, pot's illegal in Egypt. But that's just the type of thing I've always associated from, you know, travels and stories and friends who do do that with Dahab and Nueva. In other words, those are types of cheaper, less developed, and more laid-back Sinai beach towns. You won't find any big resorts or chains in this area like in the other Red Sea hotspots. You know, what you have really in Dahab and Nueva are smaller beach motels and quirky guest houses and things like that. Although there is there is a Lay Meridian in Dahab. I do remember that. But other than that, it's just small local places and it attracts more of, you know, independent backpacker types and expats. Now, just one more thing to mention. Further up the coast, right by the Israeli border, is a city called Taba that does have larger hotels and resorts on the Red Sea. But I wouldn't advise anyone coming from abroad to visit Egypt and waste their time in Taba. Taba is more of a weekend getaway place for locals, and it's just really nothing nice or special. I wouldn't really bother with Taba. And I'd really recommend only considering Dahab and Nueva if you want sort of a hippie backpacker experience. And that's okay if you do. You know, some people really want that. But if you want nightlife or diving, consider Charm. Otherwise, the best places to go, in my recommendation on the Red Sea, are still over on the mainland coast. Guna, Soma Bay, and Marsa Alam if you really want to get away and have a chill experience where a few people go. Marsa Alam's great for that. So... In addition to Egypt's Red Sea coast, there is another area that is starting to boom finally, and it's full of beaches and great resorts now, or it's starting to be, and we call it the North Coast. This is Egypt's stretch of beach along the Mediterranean in the north of the country. The Red Sea is in the east, on Egypt's east coast. The Mediterranean is Egypt's north coast, and so we call this area the North Coast. This area was never really that attractive until recently, but now it's getting a lot of new life breathed into it because it's getting some new resort areas, it's getting some really trendy and swanky restaurants, beach clubs, developments, things like that. But I'll save that for another episode. We'll make this a three-parter, and in the third and final episode, I'll cover not only these North Coast new beach areas uh, that are becoming really popular and trendy as of late, But I'll also go into Egypt's oases and what you should consider if you're thinking of incorporating an oasis experience into your trip. We'll cover that next time. All right. So with that, we'll leave it here. We'll pick up again soon. All the best, everybody. We'll see you in the next episode. Ma Salama. (laughs) 